I don't think we shall get beyond the background of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, we're deliberately going to confine ourselves to the background of Isaiah tonight, not that we shall be able to take each prophet like this, profitable as it would be. Um, but uh, Isaiah, I think, demands a, a more um, serious understanding of his background. You'll remember a little of last week, we spent quite a time um, just uh, reviewing the prophetical division of the Old Testament, this last great division of the Old Testament, and also the whole function and nature of the prophet and of prophecy. And you remember that we um, spoke a little while about uh, the book of Isaiah. It is the first in this prophetical division of the Old Testament and is undoubtedly uh, the most loved. Um, I don't think there's any other part of the prophetical uh, division of the Old Testament that is loved quite as the book of Isaiah is loved and has the same direct approach to um, each individual believer um, as this uh, prophecy has. Uh, certainly Isaiah um, soars away and beyond all the other prophets in language, in style, uh, and in some cases in subject as well, in substance. He is undoubtedly uh, the most uh, gifted and talented uh, under the Holy Spirit uh, of the prophets that we have uh, in the Old Testament. Um, we shall see a little bit more about that background uh, this evening, I trust. Um, we, we must just uh, re-emphasize one point, and that is that Isaiah lays the foundation for all the other prophets that come uh, after him, except for uh, Amos and Hosea, um, all the other uh, prophets uh, 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 follow on Isaiah. And it is very interesting that the Holy Spirit has placed the um, book of Isaiah first in the prophetical uh, division of the Old Testament. Undoubtedly, uh, he laid the foundation of much that was to be uh, said. And as I've been reading in a new light the book of Isaiah, I find a lot of things that, that one has not before noticed uh, in this book. It's amazing how you can come back to read familiar parts of the Word of God and just suddenly realize that you're reading something you've never noticed before. But there are many things in the book of Isaiah which I thought were New Testament uh, conceptions, all kinds of small thoughts and um, uh, insights and so on that um, you suddenly realize underlie what Paul said or what um, uh, James said or what Peter said and so on. It's most interesting to see that and how in many ways Isaiah's great the great revelation that was given to Isaiah has become basic to uh, so much uh, that was to follow. Well, we should expect that because the prophetical division of the Old Testament is the elucidation 
of the principles that have been contained in the previous sections of the uh, Bible, particularly the first five books. Uh, the prophets are always harking back to Moses, always going back to Abraham, from whom the whole nation was hewn. Uh, they are continually turning the gaze back to the beginnings of the nation, the beginnings of the people, um, and so much else, and not just turning them back in a sentimental, uh, nationally sentimental way, but um, turning them back to understand the very principles inherent within their calling and within all God's dealings with them um, as a people. And we spent a little while last week, if I remember rightly, upon authorship and date. We spoke about the tremendous controversy that has always, in the last hundred, uh, hundred years or more, centered upon the authorship of this book of Isaiah, um, particularly on the chapters 40 to 66. Um, all kinds of ideas have been uh, put forward and suggested as to who it might be uh, and so on. But uh, I think we, we, as we looked over that, we can come to a somewhat safe and reasonable conclusion that the whole book, the whole book of 66 chapters, in actual fact, belongs to the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> the first part, the first 35 chapters, written in his early ministry, when a young man uh, from chapter 36 to 39 the historical part of the book of Isaiah, written in his later years when he was about 60 or so. And then the last part of the book from chapter 40 to 66 belongs to his, the closing years of his ministry. He was probably in his 70s when he wrote, uh, finally committed to writing the last part um, of the book. And that explains an awful lot um, of the difference in style and language and much else that exists between the first chapters of Isaiah and the last chapters of Isaiah. We would expect it. Uh, indeed, it is interesting that the riddle of why so much in the beginning is still at the end in the last chapters, the riddle that has faced so many critics as they have looked at Isaiah has been that at the beginning there seems to be so much that corresponds with the end, and yet such a difference of style and language and subject, they felt that it could not be the same author. But of course, if, uh, if uh, quite a number of years have elapsed between the writing of the first and the last part, that would explain a tremendous amount. Well, now, this evening, we are going to consider the background of Isaiah. The name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. It was evidently given to him by his father and mother. We have no record of his mother. We don't know who she was, or what she was, what type of person she was, except that they gave their son the name, the Lord is salvation. And this, in some ways, is quite remarkable. Because, you see, Isaiah was born in the days of Uzziah, or Azariah. Uh, 
a king who undoubtedly uh, loved the law to a certain point. Uh, he um, served the Lord. His official policy was to support the Lord at all costs and to honor the uh, faith um, of the fathers. But ne nevertheless, we discover that in the reign of Isaiah, it was uh, amongst the uh, public, um, there was anything but the real wholehearted uh, utter devotion uh, that there should be. And therefore it's all the more remarkable that in days when there was a great mixture of religion, um, so much was uh, mixed up with Baal worship, with the worship of the surrounding nations. There was a terrible mixture. Do you remember in the studies of the Book of Kings and Chronicles? We pointed that out to you. It wasn't that, that people were actually... Um, uh, com just going over completely to the worship of heathen deities and uh, idols, but rather it was that the worship of Jehovah was a, an amazing mixture of Baal worship. They worshipped Jehovah as they would worship Baal. And uh, that was the thing that the prophets could not abide at any cost. Isaiah's father, Amos, gave to him the name of the Lord is, just, is salvation. Y Yah is salvation. A shortened form of Jehovah. Jehovah is salvation. There could be nothing more clear than that. He didn't say God is salvation. He said Jehovah is salvation. And that in itself was a somewhat remarkable testimony in days of outward uh, uh, religion, at least the policy of the royal house and of the government, was to worship the Lord. Yet, generally speaking, it was a terrible mixture. And you got all kinds of uh, compromise. Uh, we find that Isaiah was given this name, obviously by those who loved the Lord. Some we, we I don't think, ever put quite enough upon um, the influence of home. Uh, and family. <clears throat> it has a lasting and lifelong influence upon everyone, whether they're saved or not saved. And um, how many people suffer from their background at the end of their days uh, is something uh, that in these days is being taken more and more into account. Very rarely do people ever get away from the influences of their early days. Um, and it could be no more wonderful than when there is a true, genuine, sincere, and real uh, life with the Lord uh, in one's parents. Isaiah was evidently blessed with such a hope in the midst of so much that was compromised, so much that was apostate, so much that was just superficial, uh, <coughs> shallow. Uh, he lived and was brought up in a home that evidently uh, really understood the purpose of God, something of the purpose of God, and brought up Isaiah uh, in an understanding of the ways uh, of the Lord. At least that's uh, as far as we can find out. We find um, uh, his father's name is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 1 and in verse 1 of chapter 2. Um, I might just say that, that I've put the rest of the 
table of reading on the board tonight. Um, you can copy that afterwards because on the other side I have a somewhat detailed chart of the times of Isaac. <coughs> As just um, a historical uh, chart uh, to give you some idea of the times of Isaac, I'll just explain it. Uh, in red, those are Anstey's uh, uh, dates. Um, Anstey is the most sound uh, of all the uh, chronologers, uh, uh, all the students, scholars of biblical chronology, but he doesn't always agree with the modern, um, scholar, the modern scholarship. I, I have put the IVF uh, figures alongside of Anstey's uh, chronology. In the end, when they come to 719, all agree. But it's the great um, uh, co-regencies and interregnums and so on that um, have caused so much uh, confusion and chaos uh, in this whole question of biblical chronology. So I put in red Anstey's figures that are absolutely scriptural. Anstey refused to take note of anything else but the Bible itself and found that in not one single incident in the whole of Scripture is the Bible at variance with itself in chronology. Uh, Assyrian dates, Egyptian dates, uh, our dates might um, all conflict, but the Bible itself is a system of chronology which is absolutely foolproof within itself. And so those are his dates. The IVF doesn't feel quite the same, and other uh, um, scho uh, modern scholarship doesn't feel quite the same. It feels you've got to take more note of Assyrian and Egyptian, uh, Greek, uh, there we are. <clears throat> On this side, you have the kings of Israel came to an end with Hoshea when he was when he was killed and the rest taken into captivity. And on the right-hand side, you have the list of the Judean kings, the kings of Judah. I have begun with Isaiah's father. In green, you have the different prophets and the time in, in the reigns in which they ministered. Gives you some idea. Uh, just in a chart form of the background, the historical background of Isaiah. Um, Jewish tradition tells us, and in, in many ways, most scholars are inclined to believe this tradition, though we have nothing in the scripture to support it. A Jewish tradition tells us that, um, that a Amos was the brother of King Amaziah. He was, in actual fact, Jewish tradition says, the youngest brother of King Amaziah. That means that Isaiah was a very young cousin of King Isaiah. Uh, that uh, is very, very interesting because, you see, it would explain a tremendous amount of Isaiah's background, his... his um, uh, his education, for instance, his social standing, um, uh, the, the outstanding uh, gifts that he had that were not just inherent gifts, but trained gifts. Um, Isaiah stands out for many others of the prophets in being one who was uh, in himself an exceedingly cultured man. Furthermore, it is interesting to note that he had immediate access to the royal house. 
All the way through the book, you find that Isaiah has the ear of the different kings. It doesn't matter if it is uh, King Jotham or King Ahaz or whether it's King Hezekiah. All um, uh, seem to accept Isaiah into their immediate circle. Now, <clears throat> of course, Egyptian court, um, uh, Eastern courts were quite different to uh, anything that we know in our day. The, the poorest man could find his way into the, <coughs> the court uh, of the king and, and make his request, um, so long as it was uh, he knew who to ask. Uh, there was a direct appeal to the king. Nevertheless, the fact that Isaiah could uh, have such regular and um, easy access into court circles and have the ear of the most influential people of his day um, seems to support the tradition that in actual fact he was himself a royal stock uh, and was a member of the royal family. Now this is most interesting because a little later on we shall find other prophets that are anything uh, but of royal stock. Uh, quite the opposite. And it is most interesting to discover the kind of men that God takes up. Um, it is taking all the evidence that we have. Um, it would seem that Isaiah, the only way we can explain the influence of Isaiah uh, in the court itself and the um, means by which he seemed to hold the attention of the court circles and uh, was able, even when the whole policy of the royal house was blatantly contrary to what he was saying uh, and uh, what he felt to be the way. Yet <clears throat> it seems that right through to the reign of Manasseh, Isaiah was welcomed and accepted uh, into the actual circle uh, of the royal family. Certainly, we must say this, that whether the tradition that he was a cousin of Isaiah, Isaiah or not, it is true that he was a highly educated and cultured uh, uh, man. He was a qualified. Isaiah is not just someone who uh, came out of the backwoods and made a deep and lasting impression upon the people of his day. Isaiah was a qualified man. Um, as someone has said, if Isaiah had not been a prophet, he would have been one of the most outstanding statesmen of his day. He was qualified to be a statesman. He is qualified, of course, as many have pointed out, to rank with men of this day uh, at the head um, of nations. Uh, his was a most remarkable gift of insight and of understanding and of counsel and advice. We've got, we shall see later when we look at uh, the whole book of Isaiah that Isaiah's counsel was not just a kind of um, spontaneous something that welled up in his heart. Many people have got the idea that Isaiah just sort of said things that came into his head. He didn't. You will discover again and again that, that Isaiah has weighed up political situations. He has weighed them up. He's seen the advantage and the disadvantage. And in spite of the fact that he can see everything clearly, he, he is an absolutely faithful spokesman and mouthpiece of the Lord. 
He's not just saying things that come into his head. Uh, he is actually giving, in some cases, a verdict upon a situation that has come from an awful lot of reflection and a, um, a good deal of inward instruction over years. Um, I could point you to two or three places in Isaiah, particularly in his oracles or burdens concerning Edom or concerning Egypt or concerning Ethiopia and so on. It's very interesting that he, he, he seems to have a principle that he applies to nations. Righteousness exalteth a nation. And when he doesn't find that principle, he's pretty certain that sooner or later uh, a terrible judgment is going to overtake them. So it is interesting to note that Isaiah um, is uh, a, most a most highly educated man. And also, if you look at 2 Chronicles, chapter 26 and verse 22, you will see also that he was an official historian. Now, even in those days, um, things were that advanced that you didn't just have anyone as the official historian uh, of a reign. Uh, in 2 Chronicles, chapter 26 and verse 22, we discover this very interesting little remark, and there's nothing else in Scripture that we have to which it refers. It just says, now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first and last, did Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, write. Well, we haven't got those uh, chronicles. We, we, we haven't got the history of King Isaiah. But this is the point. King Isaiah, even though scripture gives him but a few verses, politically was the greatest king of Judah's history. Now, you remember when we um, first started upon uh, this part of the Word of God, when we started with the first and second book of Kings, we pointed out to you how remarkably the Holy Spirit has passed over the, some of the most famous politically, uh, the most famous and brilliant reigns of uh, uh, history and dwelt on those that by political standards and by international standards were in actual fact somewhat dull and anything but brilliant, somewhat insignificant. Um, the key in every case was um, their attitude to the Lord. And in a few moments we shall consider the reign of Isaiah. But you see, Isaiah was the man de deputed by the king and the government of his day to write up the official history of the most brilliant, uh, politically, the most brilliant section of the history of Judah. Now that means that Isaiah must have been in his day the most qualified and the most uh, suited man uh, to the task. And this is all the more remarkable when we, when we must remember that if Isaiah was 90 when he died, he was only 20 when King Uzziah died. Uh, if he lived, of course, as Jewish tradition tells us to be 120, well, that does uh, give him uh, uh, somewhat more of a stature. Otherwise, we must take it into account that here was a young man in his 20s at the most, 
who was called upon to chronicle uh, one of the most brilliant parts of uh, Judah's history. All this is most interesting because as we go on and we see some of the other prophets and their background and calling and so on, we shall discover the variety of God's instruments. Here then was um, a man that we would consider to be uh, um, refined, cultured, educated, qualified, royalty, uh, much else uh, that we could say um, about the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> then we discover a few more things about his background. He was married. And furthermore, he was not only married, but his wife was a prophetess. If we look at Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 3, we find the only reference to her in the whole book is uh, in verse 3, I went unto the prophetess and she conceived and bare a son. Uh, his wife was evidently, from what we can gather from the way he describes her, wholly with him uh, in his ministry. Uh, there was no unequal yoking there. Uh, they were absolutely together from uh, the way things are described in this ministry uh, that was his. Then we have also uh, another interesting insight into his background. He had two sons at least. We don't know whether he had more, but he had two sons with somewhat unpronounceable names. The first we find in chapter 7, verse 3, Shear Jashub, which means uh, the, a remnant shall return. And in chapter 8 and verse 3, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil speedeth, the prey hasteth. Um, Isaiah was told to give the, his two sons names that were prophetical in their nature. And in, many, in a very interesting way, sum up his ministry. One, a remnant shall return. Uh, the other, the spoil hasteth. The prey uh, hasteth. The, it, it was on one side a terrible ministry of judgment and desolation. And on the other side, a wonderful ministry of encouragement and hope. Well, there we have a little bit more into the background of, uh, as a, uh, of Isaiah. Uh, evidently, he came from a godly home, as far as we can make out, brought up uh, um, in, in the knowledge and admonition, fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, as far as we can make out, he was of royal stock, uh, brought up in the royal court, in the atmosphere of court circles, a highly educated, a cultured, man exceedingly qualified, uh, a historian in his own right, and married with two sons. What else can we discover about the prophet Isaiah? Well, we know that his ministry commenced in the last year of King Isaiah. I have actually uh, run uh, the life of Isaiah quite, uh, um, quite a way into Isaiah's uh, uh, reign, because obviously he was born much earlier than his ministry commenced. But his actual ministry began with the accession of King Joseph uh, to the throne. Um, his public ministry began then. Uh, 
we know that his ministry commenced in that year uh, from chapter 6 and verse 1, the chapter that we've read, in the year that King Uzziah died, um, Isaiah saw the Lord and was uh, apprehended of the Lord for his ministry, uh, to his ministry and place in the purpose of God. Furthermore, if we look at um, chapter 36 and verse 1, we know that he continued to minister until at least the 14th year of King Hezekiah. That is quite a sizable portion uh, of time. Uh, it would mean uh, that we have a record at least from the last year uh, of Uzziah right through to the 14th year of Hezekiah. But in actual fact, we can, we can surmise that chapter from chapter 40 to chapter 66 certainly did not precede uh, this chapter 36. And therefore, I think we can quite reasonably say that Isaiah continued his ministry right through the reign of Hezekiah. Now, that's very interesting, because it means that um, Isaiah was probably called, when he was only a, a young man of 20 years of age or so, at least at the, in his 20s, uh, and would have um, had a ministry lasting something like 61 years, at the least. A long, public ministry. But I think we shall see in a few moments that it wasn't just a long public ministry uh, in a settled, stable atmosphere, but in some of the most remarkable contrasts uh, afforded uh, to us uh, in Jewish history. Um, that, I suppose, is the most remarkable factor in Isaiah's ministry. A Jewish tradition again tells us that Isaiah was martyred, as I believe I mentioned last week, in the reign of King Manasseh. King Manasseh, as you probably know, is the most evil of all the kings of Judah, and some would say of all the kings of Israel as well. Um, to him is attributed everything uh, that finally brought the, the great judgment of God and the exile of, and dispersion uh, of uh, the people into Babylon. He, his ministry, so we're told, came to an end in the reign of Manasseh when he was in his 90s. When in the terrible uh, bloodbath that uh, um, uh, marked Manasseh's reign, he was only, only 12 years of age when he came to the throne, but he seemed to uh, very quickly get into exceedingly evil ways. And um, it is said in Scripture that he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with the blood of innocent and righteous people. Uh, Josephus tells us that he murdered every prophet that he could. And Isaiah was the most outspoken uh, prophet, so tradition tells us, in his day, but he didn't dare touch him because uh, uh, Isaiah uh, was protected uh, being a member uh, of, of the royal family. But there came a point at which uh, Manasseh, so tradition is very interesting, tradition tells us they got him. And it was on one very interesting point. 
They, Manasseh and his counselors and advisors said that Moses had said that no man had seen God at any time. But they said Isaiah said that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And it was on that count that he was finally uh, executed by being sawn uh, in two. That is the tradition uh, of the martyrdom of Isaiah, a man in, in his late 90s who was murdered in uh, cold blood. There are many scholars who incline to the view that that tradition is uh, substantially fact. And then one other point before we describe something of these reigns, the, the background of his ministry, uh, <clears throat> Amos and Hosea both ministered uh, uh, before Isaiah, before and during Isaiah, in Israel. Uh, as you probably know, Israel was coming to its end. Indeed, Isaiah lived through the momentous day of the terrible end of Israel. In Judah, they saw it from afar, the threatening clouds that began to gather over the northern kingdom, the terrible warnings that had been issued by the prophet, and then Amos appearing upon the scene with his, um, his so forthright message uh, of judgment, unless they turned from their way. And then Hosea, what a wonderful ministry was Hosea's ministry. Uh, a great cry from the heart of God to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, to turn from their ways and to leave their idols and to return to the Lord. Uh, but to no avail. Isaiah watched uh, all these uh, terrible events taking place before his eyes. And it is interesting, an interesting study in itself as to how far Amos and Hosea influenced Isaiah. Because undoubtedly, the written account of their ministry was brought to Isaiah. And there are some very interesting echoes of both Amos and Hosea in the prophecies of Isaiah. He undoubtedly, as a younger man, took very real note of the ministry of these two older brethren in the uh, northern kingdom. Then, of course, there was his contemporary. Uh, these two never came into the kingdom of Judah at all. Their whole ministry, Amos and Hosea, was in the north. Amos ministered in the days of Jeroboam II, and Hosea ministered through the reigns of the, of the last five kings uh, of, uh, uh, of Israel. Micah, however, was Isaiah's true contemporary. Um, but Micah hardly ever ministered in Jerusalem. He was um, the, the absolute opposite to Isaiah. Rustic to a degree, from a country, home, a peasant stock, altogether different to Isaiah. His style is vivid and countrified, altogether uh, unrefined. Uh, not in any way approaching Isaiah at all. And yet, 
in the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Micah ministered not only in Judah, but he crossed over into Israel and ministered also in the last two reigns of the kingdom of Israel before the final terrible siege of Samaria and the fall of Israel and the taking of the whole nation into um, forced captivity. You know, the a policy of Assyria was to colonize um, other parts of their empire with um, captive peoples. So they would take the Medes from Media and bring them right over from Media here, Elam, and settle them here. And they would take uh, Israel from here, the northern kingdom, Samaria, or Ephraim, as Hosea and the prophets call them, and take them right over here and uh, colonize uh, Elam with them. Their policy was the forcible um, uh, uh, moving, transporting of whole nations uh, to stop them, to break their back, and to um, stop any form of conspiracy or revolt. Uh, in actual fact, a very cruel but a most effective form um, of holding down a very uh, large uh, empire. The Assyrians were not known for their kindness uh, in any way. So um, Isaiah had for his contemporary um, Micah. Micah, who ministered out in the country, in the country districts, was understood by the country people. Isaiah, in Jerusalem itself, um, understood there by the ruling classes of his day, uh, particularly raised up as a voice in the midst of the royal family itself. He watched then all this from afar. What an, how interesting it is. I wonder if there's any, any man of God, any servant of God, who has not been deeply influenced in one way or another so that in the end both his function and ministry uh, cannot in actual fact be traced to any one source. They're all in God, of course. But it is interesting the way the Lord brings contributing factors uh, in to produce uh, a ministry. Lasting influence. Well, there we are. Those are, that's something of the background. Now, what about the reigns in which Isaiah lived? What can we say about those reigns? We need to remember the days in which Isaiah lived. He was born, evidently, in the reign of Isaiah. Um, we don't know at what point he was born. But if he was 20 when Jotham came finally to the throne, then he must have been born um, uh, in the midst of Isaiah's long and very illustrious reign. Isaiah um, was rather like our Queen Victoria in some ways. Um, the country was, had never been so, so established and so stable. The whole economy of the country was absolutely stabilized by Isaiah. When Isaiah took over from Amaziah, it was anything but stable. Um, Judah was at the mercy of Israel. Jeroboam II was the finest king of Israel. He had extended the borders of the northern kingdom. He had made um, the country uh, uh, an established 
uh, established it politically, and he was feared by all the smaller nations uh, round about uh, uh, Israel. Edom, Moab, uh, Philistia, Ammon, Syria, they all took note of Jeroboam II of Israel. And consequently, Judah was very much under the thumb of Israel uh, in every way. When Uzziah came to the throne as quite a young man, uh, he had, he did not know it, but he had before him one of the longest reigns in Judah's history, 52 years. And from the beginning, his policy was to give himself to the Lord and to foster in every way possible the faith of, uh, of their fathers. Um, his, therefore, was a policy uh, that was good. And the whole country reflected the reign of a good king. Oh, not so many good kings in Judah's history, but Uzziah was one of them. We might say that he was negatively good. It wasn't that he was so positively good as that he was negatively good. For instance, he had a middle-of-the-way policy. His policy was that Jehovah was the God of Judah. And Jerusalem was his dwelling place. And the house of God was where he could be found. Officially, that was his policy. The law of Moses was the law of the government and of the nation. That was his policy. Anything that con was contrary to that, he would not hear of. But where his compromising nature and um, popularity-seeking nature came in was that he refused to touch the people where it hurt. And he knew that throughout the length and the breadth of the land, there was the most evil and abominable worship going on in the high places and the hills and under, as the prophet says, every green tree. He knew that spiritism was being practiced. He knew that Jehovah had been given a wife and that the priests of Jehovah Baal, as they were called, this terrible mixture, were, were uh, indulging in immoral uh, worship to keep the cycle of life and nature going. He knew all that. And it expressly says in the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings that he did not destroy the high places or the hills. But he did extend Judah in the most remarkable way so that um, she became, uh, she recovered much of the territory that she lost. She even recovered the naval port of Elath which was um, vital to her prosperity. Uh, it was upon this naval port that much of Solomon's prosperity depended. They recovered it from Edom and opened it again as a center of commerce, and it became a great shipping port. And as a result, um, Judah became prosperous and uh, a an international force in her day. Now, it was in those days that Isaiah was born. 
He was born very much as if you or I had been born, halfway through <coughs> Queen Victoria's reign. The immorality of the Georgians was passed. Much of the, of the um, terrifying influences uh, uh, on the continent had receded. England uh, was absolutely uh, on top in the, uh, at the helm of everything. Uh, as someone has said, if anything went wrong, you just sent a gunboat up, uh, thing, and everything was put right by the very uh, sight of such a thing. England was, a, uh, uh, Britain was a, a force to be accounted. It was as if Isaiah was born in the midst of such a reign. Everything stable, everything prosperous, a tremendous boom on every side. No one really, except probably the peasant, was um, without money or employment. Uh, the whole country was in the midst of a terrific uh, boom of prosperity uh, and um, stability and peace. War was unheard of, and even Israel itself had to toe the line uh, with, uh, in the reign of King Isaiah. It was in th into this atmosphere that young Isaiah uh, um, he was born somewhere during this reign and grew up in the latter years of it. And one of the biggest influences undoubtedly must have been the terrible judgment of God upon King Isaiah. Do you remember the story? You will remember that pride lifted up Isaiah's heart. And it is said of him that he went into the house of God, into the sanctuary, the most holy place. And he took a censer of incense and offered it before the Lord. In other words, he wanted to combine the function of king and priest together, which was forbidden in the law of God. And you remember that Azariah the high priest and 80 of his stalwarts sought to stop him from doing it, but he was very angry with them. And then it says, all of a sudden, as he stood there, full of indignation and anger uh, with the priest that was seeking to stop him, the leprosy broke out on his forehead. And the high priests and the others rushed out, and the chronicler says, uh, rather amusingly, he also hasted to go. And from that day to the end <clears throat> of his reign, for 16 long years, he was in a royal, in the royal infirmary. <clears throat> cut off from palace, cut off from national life, and cut off from the house of God. He died a leper. Now, that must have had a tremendous effect upon the youthful Isaiah. And it was in the last year of Isaiah, when he died, uh, a separated man, a lonely a man, cut off from the rest of God's people, uh, that um, Isaiah saw the Lord in the temple. Evidently, Isaiah was in the temple. Uh, he was there, evidently, to worship. And uh, whilst he was in the temple, he saw the Lord high and lifted up and saw his train filling the temple. That then was the preparation for Isaiah's ministry, the prosperous years of Isaiah's reign, and particularly the way God dealt with him. Jotham, 
when he came to the throne, uh, was only a young man of uh, 25 years of age. And he reigned only for 16. He had already acted for 16 years as co-regent uh, in the place of King Uzziah. And he <clears throat> continued the policies of his father, but more positively, and it is interesting that the scripture says he did not enter into the temple as his father did. He had learnt a lesson, and his was a reign that was a good reign, but luxury and prosperity had brought all their attendant vices. And the first chapters of the prophecies of Isaiah belong to the period, uh, this period uh, of history. The reigns of Jotham and Ahaz is a most interesting account, for instance, of the women uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, what they dressed in, all their ornaments and bangles and earrings and nose rings and uh, jewellery and powder and perfume, cosmetics, how they walked. A most interesting account. And the whole thing breathed luxury. Luxury and prosperity. Um, had brought with it uh, some terrible uh, vices. And the whole land was beginning to slide right away, <coughs> even from the official policy uh, of its government. It was in, those in that reign, the reign of Jotham, that Isaiah began his public ministry. And it was an uncompromising ministry, seeing right through to the heart of everything, and not being the least bit afraid to say exactly what was wrong. Now, you know, it's much harder when you've got a good man and when that good man is with you to speak uncompromisingly and firmly and faithfully than when you've got an absolutely wicked and evil government, which is wholly contrary, at least you know where you are, and you don't feel that you're being uh, discouraging uh, when you're faithful. Uh, for, uh, for Isaiah to stand out in the reign of Jotham, who was so positively good, and yet everything underneath rotten, was no easy uh, task uh, for, uh, for, for him. He was only a young man of 20 years of age, or in his 20s, uh, when Jotham came to the throne. And he was called upon to stand courageously alone, you know, when everything seems all right, when everything seems all right, and official policy seems to be good and righteous, um, it, it's, well, why not just leave it? Especially when you're young. Much easier to leave it all. But you see, Isaiah had seen, his, the vision that he saw was the criterion of everything. And he saw right through to the heart, and he found that under the seeming devotion, and under the seeming uh, service, uh, it was, there was nothing but corruption. There were, there, it, it just wasn't true. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't real. And so it was through those years that he um, began his public ministry in a very hard school, I might say, of faithfulness. He would have been 36 years of age when the most evil king yet in Judah's uh, history came to the throne, Ahab. Ahaz was 25 year, 20 years of age when he came to the throne. He only reigned 16 years. But in those 16 years, he succeeded in leaving an 
impression that even the good king Hezekiah could not remove. In 16 years, he, he reverted everything that had been uh, the policy uh, of, the, of the nation uh, for a large number uh, of years. He forsook, uh, he forsook both the policy of his grandfather Azar and his father Jotham, and he pioneered nature worship. Now, there's, one, there's a great difference in, in just uh, turning a blind eye to it all because the people liked it and it suited them, and it was a rather popular type of movement uh, in the nation. Uh, it was one thing to turn a, a blind eye to it. It was another thing to positively pioneer it. And there were political uh, 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 things, political advantages to be taken into account. We must remember that these men were not just evil in the sense that perhaps we would think of some evil men of our day. These men were just political men. Here was a popular movement that was a kind of compromise with Baal and Jehovah. And it ought to be taken into account. If we're going to, Ahaz may well have argued, if we're going to strengthen the throne, if we're going to gain the ear of the whole nation, if we're going to somehow, as it were, fuse them into a unity uh, in the midst of all this terrible um, evil, uh, and antagonism around us in other nations, well, we've got to somehow uh, be identified with the people. It's very much like our own day. You must give the people what they want. You must give the people what you want. And you've got to, if you're at the head of the country, you've got to take into account all the different sections and factions in the nation and somehow appease them all and somehow uh, fuse them all. That was Ahaz's policy. And he therefore pioneered nature worship. Um, he himself, as an act of popular appeasement, took his own son and sacrificed him by burning him alive as a burnt offering to the god Moloch. That was the way Ahaz's reign began by taking one of his own young baby sons and uh, placing him into the uh, furnace that burnt before uh, this awful, evil, iniquitous, idol Moloch, Baal Moloch. It's an awful, an awful story uh, is the story of uh, Ahaz's reign. Um, he made Judah a vassal to Assyria. Uh, you see, by this time, um, Israel had linked itself for the first time in history with Syria. And the two had made a league. And their league was uh, virtually to, to somehow um, stave off the might and power of Assyria. And they wanted Judah to come into this league, but Judah would not. The result was that they marched against Ahaz. And uh, Ahaz lost 120,000 of his men. 200,000 of the women and children were taken captive into Israel. And only by the intervention of the Lord were they sent back. And when Ahaz had almost been brought to his knees, do you remember the wonderful words that you've got in Isaiah chapter, chapters um, 
seven, I think, eight and nine, those wonderful chapters of a promise of a deliverer. Uh, Isaiah comes with to Ahaz and uh, tells him, do you want a sign? Ask for a sign. But Ahaz refuses. Why does he refuse? Because he wants to lean on Assyria. He doesn't want the Lord. And Isaiah tells him that the sign is this, behold a virgin or a young woman shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You read through the rest of those chapters, you find the most wonderful story. What is, what is Isaiah really saying to Ahaz? He's saying that in spite of the fact that Ahaz is an evil man, he will not lose his throne because the coming of the Messiah depends upon the continuance of Ahaz and of the throne, even though he's an evil man. A remarkable prophecy. He will discover again and again that those prophecies that are related to the future are in a remarkable way related to the present. And some of it's gone so far as to say that it was a prophecy of Hezekiah in its first place. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and shall bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It was the prophet Isaiah looking forward, even in spite of the evil of King Ahaz, he saw with a, with a spiritual insight that God was going to deliver through the very loins of Ahaz himself. And that somehow or other, the throne of David was not going to be forsaken by the Lord. Now that's a, that takes a man who knows history to say that. It takes a man who knows the word of God to say that. It would have been the easiest thing in actual fact for Isaiah to have laid down the law to Ahaz and to have said, look here, Ahaz, for all your sin, the Lord's going to destroy you from off the face of the earth. But Ahaz knew only too well the promises of the law. He knew what he promised David. And therefore he knew that though Ahaz was so evil, yet there was going to be a continuance somewhere. Because right along the, in the end, the Messiah, who was the only answer to the people of God, was to come by the throne and line. Oh, it's a, it's, um, a remarkable uh, story when you really look into it. However, there we are. Um, uh, we must move, move over it uh, more, more swiftly. You see, Ahaz became a vassal to Assyria. And when he, he, he called in Assyria to help them, to deliver them from Israel and Syria, uh, in actual fact, he'd sold their liberty. And from that day, uh, Judah became just a satellite to Assyria. The uh, temple doors were closed and barred. Service was finished there. The temple vessels were uh, turned uh, uh, out, uh, cut up. The, a new altar altogether replaced the altar of God in the very house of God. And the whole character of the house of God was terribly changed by Ahaz. It was in those days that I, Isaiah ministered. And when Hezekiah came to the throne at 25 years of age uh, and reigned for 29 years, then for the first time, really, Isaiah came into his own. His, the, the, his, his ministry blossomed. It is as if suddenly all the burden and the travail of his life and of his ministry was, to, was to, to be fulfilled. And in the reign of Hezekiah, there was the most remarkable revival 
in the history uh, up to that time of Judah. You know the, the story of, of the revival uh, with Hezekiah. The temple was cleaned and cleansed out. All the rubbish removed. The doors were opened. Um, it was repaired. Then it was rededicated. Then there was a tremendous feast. Do you remember the Passover when the whole land came together to keep the Passover? It said they'd never done, it had never been kept since the, since the days of, right back in the early days, it had been kept like that uh, in the nation. And it was a tremendous renaissance and reformation. Went very deep into the heart of the nation's life. Because Hezekiah was the one of the few kings that had the courage to stand against the popular uh, movement of his day. And he destroyed the high places. And he destroyed uh, every single possibility by desecrating them of their ever being recovered. And you'll remember that he even went so far as to take the serpent, the brazen serpent, which had become uh, 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 an idol uh, in, the day, in the days of the previous kings. He took it and he broke it up. He so understood things that he was prepared to take something that had been used of God and break it because it, it was now uh, used for other purposes. Uh, a most remarkable reign, uh, Hezekiah's reign. And it was in that reign, of course, that Isaiah, for the first time, was really welcomed, really honored. Uh, it's undoubted that Hezekiah leaned upon Isaiah in no uncertain way uh, throughout his long life. So really, you know, when we, when we see that, uh, there's, there's, we, we have a greater understanding of the movement of the Spirit of God in the days of, of Hezekiah, when we understand how Isaiah was used by the Lord uh, to uh, really fashion and mold and channel uh, things in Hezekiah's day. We believe that it was in Hezekiah's day when it seemed that um, everything was moving ahead and when all seemed to be blossoming that Isaiah began to see those, those tremendous things that are contained in, in the last chapters of his of his his prophecies, 40 to 66. Um, it's interesting that the earlier chapters of Isaiah have all to do with judgments, judgments on nations. And though at times they rise very high, and at times we get the most wonderful messianic prophecies, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, and so on. And uh, many other prophecies like that in those early chapters, there is nothing correspond or to compare with the last chapters of Isaiah. And if we are true in our reckoning, then it was in the latter years of Hezekiah's reign that Isaiah began to commit to writing, began to utter and commit to writing those remarkable visions that he saw, which covered the whole um, advent of the Lord Jesus, the preparation for his coming, his coming, and then his ministry. And then the cross. And then beyond the cross to the most remarkable resurrection and fertility. So that there were, uh, a nation was born. And the little one became a thousand, the small one, a strong nation. What, what remarkable prophecies of the Lord Jesus all, all those are. Um, Isaiah saw all that in the, the latter years of Hezekiah's reign, as far as we know, if we're right in our reckoning. And it means simply this, 
that, you know, Isaiah, in spite of the reformation of Hezekiah's day, had the insight to see that it was not deep enough, it was not deep enough to stave off the final judgment that was coming. He must have been a very unpopular man uh, when his ministry blossomed in the way it did and everything seemed to swim with it and he was welcomed and honored everywhere to the length and breadth of the country, only at the end to start talking again about judgment that was to come. Because undoubtedly the last chapters of Isaiah were first understood in the context of the Babylonian captivity. They were understood to mean that the nation was going to go into captivity in spite of everything that had happened. And of course we get an echo of it. You remember when Hezekiah invites uh, an embassage from uh, Babylon and he shows them all the treasures of the Lord's house. And then Isaiah comes and says, you have done foolishly. You've done foolishly. For these very people are going to be the most, your most violent captors in the end. Now that was prophetic because Babylon was hardly heard of in Hezekiah's day. It was a little upstart uh, of, of, a, of a, a rising, the Meredith Baladin, that seemed for, it was up and down, you know. That's all. And, you know, if he'd said Assyria is going to be your captor, then everyone would have understood. But he said, no, Babylon is going to be. You're going to go into Babylon. Now, you can understand something of what Isaiah saw. You see, Isaiah was not, was not shaken by popular movements. He was not shaken by popular conceptions. He was not shaken by popularity. He lived through the most amazingly contrasting reigns in Judah's history. First of all, a good man, just the middle of the way man, a political man, diplomatic and political, Isaiah and Jotham, and then to an evil man, a positively evil man, a wicked man, contrary to everything, and then through a positively good man, a man whose name has always been remembered, and then finally ending his days in the reign of the most evil of them all, Manasseh. He didn't just give one son. It says he gave his sons as burnt offerings. He actually consecrated high places throughout the land and made the official state religion, for want of a better word, the Phoenician Canaanite uh, religion of immorality. Those, that's something of the background of Isaiah. What do we really learn from the back, that, that background? Well, it's tremendous. You've got all the play, the interplay of great nations. Egypt on one side, Assyria on the other side, and both of them standing face to face like great giants over little Judah. And both of them want Judah. It's important for them to have Judah. And so all the time you've got the political advisors of the government saying, make a pact with Egypt, or make a pact with Assyria, or others saying, let's join a, cons a conspiracy with Edom and Ammon and Philistia and Syria and Israel. Let's all get together, see? stand together. And all the way through Isaiah's one great cry was, don't, don't lean for help on any of them. Keep 
politically free from every one of them. The Lord is our salvation. Right the way through. It was not easy because undoubtedly as an intelligent man he could see the advantages uh, of, of being linked with one or other of the great powers that were around for the uh, economic prosperity and stability of the country. But no, his was a ministry that was uncompromising in its very nature. Now you see, you learn from that background of Isaiah a tremendous amount when it really comes to it. It was, it was with that background that Isaiah began to see all that he did see. And, you know, with all the flow backwards and forwards, you would have you would have thought he would have been swayed, but no. Isaiah is like a rock in the midst of these tremendous forces, backwards and forwards, one time with the Lord, then against the Lord, for the Lord, and then not for the Lord, and so it goes on. And yet Isaiah stands through it all. It doesn't matter whether it's the reign of Isaiah, or whether it's the reign of Ahaz, or whether it's the reign of Hezekiah. He's absolutely uncompromising. He is, in a very real way, the plumb line of God in the nation. It doesn't matter what, whether, what they are, what they say, whether they're for the Lord or against the Lord, he's the one that's measuring. He's bringing the Lord's reckoning in all the time. He's bringing the Lord as the criterion of everything. And the Lord as the standard of everything. And it's in that atmosphere that he saw what he saw. Well, I don't know whether that is rather heavy. But you know, when we really look at it, the most abiding influence in Isaiah's life was his call. And it's most interesting that it was in, it was, as it were, at the very beginning of a long, difficult ministry that the Lord laid hold of him. And you know, the way the Lord did it was remarkable. He gave him a vision. And the vision was of the Lord. And the Lord in his temple but the wonderful thing is this. The temple itself cannot really wholly contain the Lord. It can only contain the skirts of his garments. Now that's the vision that Isaiah saw. And that's the thing that gave him his stability and strength through such terrible days. He didn't see some small, confined, restricted, limited God somehow trapped in some great edifice. He saw the great edifice, the great temple, as, as altogether superseded and overwhelmed by, by the Lord himself. You know, when he went into the outer court, suddenly, what a vision he saw. When he lifted up his eyes, suddenly, above the actual holy place and the most holy place, he saw the Lord. And then he looked down. And he saw the train of the Lord filling the house of God. The whole thing filled with the very train of the Lord. And then right high above it all, in the very heavens itself, he saw the Lord. Earth and heaven linked. How were they linked? Where were they linked? He saw that they were linked in the house of God. Heaven and earth are linked through the house of God. He didn't see the Lord over there or just up there. 
he saw the Lord in the heavens and his feet in the house and his, his, the skirts of his garments, his train, filling it all to capacity. What a vision. Now you understand something. You see, when Isaiah went to the people, no one had ever seen a vision like that. The popular conception was of some little idol encased in some edifice, some chapel, where you went in and burnt something, and bowed, or got yourself involved in some awful act of worship. But Isaiah saw the Lord and his train through the temple, and then he heard voice, and the voice was one of response. Holy, said one of the crowd of seraphim. And the other crowd responded, holy. And then from somewhere else came another response, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. Now you see, from that point onward, the whole of Isaiah's ministry is absolutely bounded by what he saw. His whole ministry is to do with Zion and Jerusalem and the daughter of Jerusalem and the glory of God. His whole ministry is summed up in, I will make the place of my feet glorious. His whole ministry is taken up with the Lord as Lord of the heavens and the earth. Not just the heavens, the heavens and the earth. And Zion as the place where God touches the earth. And so the whole of his ministry is one of everything coming to Zion. Zion being the place of the Lord's glory. Zion being the place of the Lord's light. Zion being the place of the Lord's manifestation. Zion being the place of the Lord's salvation. Everywhere, everywhere, it all centers in Zion. And so he speaks of the nations coming to Zion, the ends of the earth looking to Zion, people catching hold of those going to Zion and say, we will come with you. And so on. That's what he saw when he, when he saw the Lord. What a vision that is, a vision of the majesty of the Lord, a vision of the greatness of the Lord, a vision of the holiness of the Lord, a vision of the glory of the Lord. That was what Isaiah saw in the temple. He was only 20, but in the temple he saw a vision that was to leave the most abiding and lasting impression not only upon him, but upon the people of God through every succeeding generation. So you can understand something of Isaiah's ministry. Why was he so stable? Why did he see through everything? He was judging everything by the Lord whom he'd seen. He was judging every popular movement by the one upon whom he'd looked. He'd seen something. And nothing else satisfied him. And everything was judged by what he'd seen. Well, uh, I would like to go on from there, but I think we must leave it. But you see... Isaiah's God and, and the whole of his prophecy breathes it was not small, was not little, was not limited, was not restricted. His God is absolutely supreme. The world and its inhabitants is like a circle and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The Lord is so big. The Lord's everything. The Lord's everything in Isaiah. And then something happens in Isaiah. You wouldn't think this, but the immediate reaction in Isaiah was one of, of deep uh, brokenness. His first reaction was, 
I am undone. I live in the midst of a people of uncleanness. I am unclean. That was the first reaction. Devastation. Devastation. It was the beginning of his ministry. A devastating blow. Well, after that devastating blow, as with John, it needed an angel to come, or some the Son of Man himself to come and say, commission was it to go to a people and say hear ye and you won't hear and see ye and you won't see and so on and when poor Isaiah said what all of us would have said and how long have I got to go on doing this Lord uh, he said until the whole land is desolate that's not a very cheerful thing for a young man of 20 when he's seen such a vision he's seen the Lord high and up, the temple filled with him glory, majesty, greatness holiness forever after he called the Lord the Holy One now what does he say? Now he says, how long, Lord? Until. But you know, the last point is simply this, that uh, the Lord said to him, till the tree's been cut down, till even the tenth has been eaten up, but there's a stump left. That stump is the Holy Spirit. The vindication of Isaiah's ministry is a tiny moment that in the end, so he calls his son, Shehar, Shehar, Jeshua, a remnant shall return. The other son's really a name of judgment, the spoil, peace. But uh, this one is a, is a question of remnant shall return. So his whole ministry is to do with the remnant. And if you just go through this coming week, it'll take more than a week, I think, to read through the book of Isaiah and underline everywhere that it speaks of the remnant. bless all this thyself Lord remove what is just unnecessary and uh, heavy and Lord leave with us that which will be of lasting value to us all we ask it in the name of